Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 537 of the podcast and it is Sunday the 7th of March 2021 as I record this. So in today's show I'm talking to the lovely Stephen Pressfield about being a warrior of the blank page and we talk about all kinds of things actually and uh, Steve has some always insightful things to say about the creative process, about writing through self-doubt, about breaking through resistance to write and market your work. And in fact, Steve has some very interesting things to say about book marketing and uh, how much effort he's making this time around and why it's so important. And if you go to his site, stephenpressfield.com, you'll find lots of pre-order bonuses for A Man at Arms, which is his latest book, and great uh, great examples of marketing from all kinds of different angles. It's always good to watch a big launch from an author, especially an author of the level that Steve is and uh, how well-respected he is in the industry. He also has a whole series, a video series on the warrior archetype. So really interesting chat that we have today, lots about craft and about marketing and about mindset as well. So as ever, I do love talking to Steve. So that is coming up. In publishing news this week, well, a few voice tech related things. I haven't really been talking too much about this recently, but Publishing Perspectives has an article from Richard Charkin here in the UK who runs Mench Publishing, which is a small press. And what's interesting is Richard Charkin is someone who's been in publishing a long time. He unofficially retired and then started another publishing house. He just couldn't help himself. Uh, But what's interesting is that he has released some books in the Google Play beta for AI narrated audiobooks. And this is fascinating to me because, uh, you know, first of all, you know, Charkin's been in publishing a long time. He's a he's an older guy and he has essentially embraced this AI narration. And this is the Google Play beta, which I've mentioned before, but the ones they originally released are public domain books. These are new books. And he says, quoting from the article, the technology has surpassed my expectations. Uh, he did say I struggled to cope with the audio editing, but this is interesting to me because I think the audio editing suite of tools is obviously going to improve. He says the technology cannot yet cope with multiple voices, nor with ironic intonation. Humour is a problem as is inflection. But uh, he says basically anyone could convert the typesetting files to an audio file with a choice of speaker. Male, female, American, British, posh, not so posh. Uh, This can be done in an hour at minimal expense and as quickly to market as publishing will ever allow. And the technology is evolving all the time. He says, I see a major role in making available those books whose value is in the information contained, not necessarily for some, uh, he says, I can't imagine the Harry Potter Stephen Fry audio edition being superseded by auto narration. Although personally, if I was Stephen Fry, I'd be licensing my voice. (laughs) So you never know. Charkin says, these audio books are not perfect yet, but publishing has always been about aiming for perfection, but accepting the best available. All non-fiction and academic publishers should investigate auto-narration as a service to their authors and to the listeners worldwide. Experimentation is at the heart of adapting to new circumstances, and this seems to me an experiment well worth testing. The more publishers test, the faster the technology will improve. And I'm like here cheering on Richard Charkin, who is about as far away from me in terms of the publishing industry as you know within the industry but he's you know we're very different people with very different experiences and yet both of us are saying this so I'm really encouraged by this very encouraged by the fact that a UK traditional publisher is going this route this is uh, I believe the first instance of a traditional publisher talking about AI narration of audiobooks that I have really seen But in in order to take it further, so obviously Google have a very strong AI uh, component, but there are some other things that have come up in the last week that I think also add to the 
the forward moving shift that we're seeing the sort of march forward of audio tech. First of all, uh, the potential of AI voices has been demonstrated in the deepfake Tom Cruise on TikTok, which if you haven't seen is well worth watching. And very importantly, the creator has made this very obviously with deep, deep Tom Cruise, I think is the, the account, but it's, it's, it's a deliberate deepfake to show you how good this technology is. And it shows what can be achieved in both a good and bad way. And uh, you can read a lot about that. But essentially, these tools are getting easier and easier to use. And um, as ever with tools and weapons, I always uh, quote that uh, book, which that's exactly what technology is. It's a tool. It's a weapon. We have to choose how we're going to use it. Also, VentureBeat reports that a company called Sonantic has figured out how to use AI to turn written words into spoken dialogue in a script, and it can infuse those words with emotion. The breakthrough advancement revolutionises audio engineering capabilities for gaming and film studios, culminating in hyper-realistic, emotionally expressive and controllable artificial voices. So this is from VentureBeat and this is about gaming. And of course, gaming is the huge, huge, huge industry. And it is very likely that gaming will solve this problem first because that is where the money is. Let's face it. I mean, I always talk about this with AI. Why would anyone use an AI to write a novel when they can use it to solve the environment or healthcare or any of the other systemic problems that we have as as the human race? Uh, But this is an, uh, an example here. Gaming want to solve this problem. And by gaming solving it, we will reap the rewards down the track. Um, But yeah, people will always solve the problems either where the money is or where the biggest problems really are. So yeah, I'm I'm encouraged by this, though. I think we're really not far off uh, AI narration of of audio. But as I've talked about, if you have listened uh, to the episode I put out before Christmas and my book on AI um, and converging the impact of converging technologies. I have a whole chapter on voice and I don't think this is a going to destroy things. This is an abundance mentality. This is a stratification of audio rights where, for example, uh, you will have, I will do a human narration of my audiobook as I have for uh, How to Make a Living with Your Writing, the third edition coming out next week uh, as you're listening to this uh, when this goes out. But I've human narrated that. But let's say uh, you wanted it in an American male voice. Well, maybe I'll create an AI version, an AI narrated version with an American male voice and you can listen to it that way. So, and that that might be, if it only takes an hour, as Richard Charkin has said, well, I'd probably create lots of different ones. <laughs> and then maybe you could pay a premium price for the human narration. You can pay a cheaper price for an AI narration. You can pay uh, a certain amount for an um, ebook. You can pay more for a limited edition hardback. This is why I'm so excited about the abundance mentality of this futurist stuff. We are getting more and more and more opportunities. And it, oh, it's, it's so exciting. I'm so excited. Anyway, Coming back to other uh, voice news, also interesting, Spotify have rolled out into 80, yes, 80 new markets as part of our ongoing commitment to building a truly borderless audio ecosystem. So they've rolled out to 80 countries and 36 languages. These 80 plus markets represent more than a billion people, potential Spotify listeners who have yet to tap into the power of our platform. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, welcome to the show. (laughs) And this is interesting because uh, obviously Spotify have talked about moving into audiobooks. Podcasting also sells books. And one of the questions I get a lot is, well, well, you know, you talk all about selling internationally and I've now sold books through uh, various, you know, online sites, including Kobo Writing Life to over 162 countries, something like that. And the main reason is podcasting. Podcasting is an international marketing tool and Spotify rolling out even further here. This means we're going to be able to reach even more people. I was, I actually asked Kobo Writing Life to give me a list of the countries that I hadn't sold any books in. <laughs> And they're all a challenge. But maybe now with Spotify rolling out, it will be less of a challenge. So very excited about, um, I would, my, I mean, I would obviously like to sell books in every single country that I can. So that's 190 countries at the moment. That is my goal. <laughs> One of my many goals. Uh, anyway, so podcasting definitely sells books. 
if you are a good podcast guest and you give great value to the audience. And I did actually post a chapter on this topic from my Audio for Authors book on the blog this week, uh, which you can find on The Creative Pen, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And of course, you can even listen to that chapter in the audiobook of Audio for Authors, which is all about audiobooks, podcasting and voice tech. So we shall see. Will Spotify roll out audiobooks this year in a much bigger way? I mean, they do have a few audiobooks, but it's at the moment, if you go onto your Spotify app, if you, if you are a member, you can, you can check it out for free. It's got music and then it's got podcasts as their two main areas. And that will, will they add audiobooks? I think they must do because their goal, their stated goal is to sort of be the destination for audio. So there we go. Also on the topic of voice, several of you have emailed me about Clubhouse, which has been discussed in lots of different areas. Uh, it is a live live audio only, real-time social network, basically. And I've been resisting it because I didn't really want to add anything new to my life. I don't have time to listen to everything I want to listen to already, let alone more audio. But I have now joined because it feels like it's gaining some momentum. If you are on Clubhouse, I'm at the creative pen as usual. It's definitely interesting for those of us who prefer audio to video, which is obviously me. And it does feel like Twitter did in 2009. So I first joined Twitter in 2009. And you really could network with people who were very big in the industry, because there were so few people on Twitter that it and it was and they were on Twitter all the time. And Clubhouse feels a bit like that at the moment. Although I see a real problem with it that most of the people talking about this in the US, and the biggest problem, it's real time. And if you want a global platform, and of course, my thing is always I want to be global, you cannot have a real time global platform, because we're all in different time zones. So what I've noticed is that there have been conversations I would love to listen into, but they are at 11pm my time or 1am my time here in the UK. And so the time that I do have a look at Clubhouse, it's um, British, European or Asian conversations that are going on. And I, because it's real time only, there's no recordings, that to me means it cannot ever be international because you just, this is the problem with running an international business. You can never find a good time zone for everyone. <laughs> you have to say, right, today I'm going to aim at the American market. So I'm going to have a time zone that people in America will will listen in on. And then if I want to aim for you know, a different market, then I'll change my time zone. So this is a very significant thing. And because it's so beloved right now of American entrepreneurs, I think they might have forgotten this. I haven't heard anyone else mention this, but I, I think that is a real issue. Personally, for me, that's an issue. So I would love for them to add in recording options. Um, but of course, they've said the whole point is that it's real time. But uh, I've also heard that um, Fireside, which is being funded by Mark Cuban, which sounds like it might integrate with podcasts in a much more effective way. And for example, I obviously spend a lot of time preparing for each of these podcast episodes. I obviously do that. I prepare for the interviews. I do the interviews. I edit the interviews. I do all of this preparation for the introduction. I do all my reading in the week. I edit it, you know, and I do all my own podcast editing and formatting and everything. Now I'm back to doing it all myself uh, because, because uh, control freakery, let's just call it that. Also, I, I've I wanted to sort of move up more to real time. So I'm recording this on a Sunday and it goes out Monday morning. And when I worked with someone else, I had to get it to them on Friday. So it kind of changed my time timings. Anyway, coming back to voice, I think that, yes, I can see the attraction of this sort of real time. But for me, I'd love some kind of app where I could talk to you guys in a more casual sense in between sessions if people had specific questions. So for example, Twitter audio might be that, but at the moment, Twitter hasn't rolled that out globally, as far as I know. And then, yeah, I was really thinking about, well, how could I use something like this? Or how could I talk to you guys more in a less structured manner? But it doesn't look as if Clubhouse would be that type of thing. So I'm very interested in the splintering of the social media into these more audio platforms because I'm definitely an audio person. It's funny, I do think that these splintering ideas, this sort of stratification idea is going to be the thing that underpins as time rolls on. I've been reading a lot and I'll be talking about 
blockchain and NFTs and things on Friday's AI type show, Futurist show, which will be coming out on Friday uh, the 12th of March, something like that this week. But I've been reading so much at the moment, lots of books, lots of thinking about things. And you know, I'm talking about positioning ourselves so we can be ready for 2030. Well, it feels almost like this shift is speeding up much more than expected that even I expected. And that's saying a lot. (laughs) I want to make sure we're well positioned for the changes ahead. And at the moment, even I'm feeling like, whoa, okay, I can feel the earth moving a little as some of the things we've relied on as the linchpins of what we've done are beginning to change. So I'll be talking about all this, but the pandemic has really sped up a lot of things that were going to take much longer. And the choices we make now are the things that will lead us to continued success in the future. And as ever, look, to be honest, creating and controlling your own intellectual property will always be a good idea. So writing books, and then if you are going to sign contracts, like I've talked about this many times, the the worst contract clause is essentially signing away all formats existing now and to be invented for basically the life of copyright. Because what's happening, we can see this with these NFTs, um, which again, I'll talk about in Friday, but it's basically a new digital format, like a a digital limited edition that we can create. And if you don't have the rights to do things like that with your work, then you might, well, you just won't be able to do that. And I, I feel, it feels to me that there are many more exciting things coming that we need to be able to do. So I have no issue with people signing, uh, publishing contracts, but be very, clear about what rights you are signing away. And yeah, don't sign away formats that haven't even been invented yet. It just seems crazy. Um, Be very specific about what you're agreeing to license. So yeah, I think coming back to it, yes, things are speeding up. Yes, there is great technological change ahead. But if you focus on writing your intellectual property, you know, making your books, your intellectual property assets. And then if you think about Uh, selective rights licensing and controlling your IP so that you can take advantage of the technology as it emerges. That's important. And I talk about this a lot in How to Make a Living with Your Writing, the third edition, which is coming out soon. And as ever, I will continue to share what I learn as we move forward. And I hope you're enjoying the extra AI slash futurist episodes that I'm putting out uh, every couple of weeks at the moment. As I'm thinking about things and talking to people, I'm trying to, it, it goes bigger than these futurist segments, basically. So that's why I'm doing that. So in my personal update, I'm still in finishing mode. <laughs> I did finish the narration and editing of the audiobook of How to Make a Living with Your Writing 3rd Edition, which is now, um, uh, I do all the editing and then I pass it over to uh, Dan, my audio man, for mastering and uploading. And I will upload it after he's finished mastering. And so I'll be selling the audio direct on Monday 15th of March. So that will be the best place to get it then. And then it will take about a month to get to the other audio platforms if you prefer the audiobook but it is coming and uh, yes I am narrating it. I'm also still doing finishing tasks on your author business plan in German and the Matt Walker fantasy trilogy and I've been recording a lot of podcast podcast uh, interviews with for both the creative pen and also books and travel and just banking a load because I really feel like really really hope that lockdown will be lifted within the next few weeks here in the UK or at least the first tiny tiny lift, which is not exactly lifted, but it's the first, it's a start. I might even get to see my uh, parents, which will be nice. <laughs> so yes, I might even be able to leave the area, which would also be amazing. I will never, please remind me of this. I will never, ever take it for granted again that I can go and stay somewhere outside my few square kilometres. <laughs> I'm, I'm really starting to go a little bit mad now. Uh, anyway, This week, I was on the Wish I'd Known Then podcast uh, with the lovely Sarah Rosette and Jamie Albright. And I talk about something I've not really shared before in terms of my fiction name and the choice 
of uh, JF pen and initials and all of those things and a whole other load of lessons learned on the journey. So you can go to Wish I'd Known Then podcast and it's a great show because they talk about lessons learned as writers, what you wish you had known as a writer. So that's interesting. I'm also on the Ask Ally podcast with Orna Ross talking about literary prizes, awards and competitions. Why would you even enter a prize or an award? How can you tell what is worth entering? Because there are lots of ones that are not worth entering and tips on how to to stand out. I also wanted to mention that I'm, in terms of listening, I'm listening to the Land of the Giants podcast, which I mentioned a while back, but they've covered, their first season was on Amazon, second was on Netflix, now they're on to Google, and it's fascinating. And this is part of why I'm feeling like the ground shifting, because the move against big tech, the backlash against big tech, and the way that these tech companies are both the most incredible, useful, brilliant, amazing things that we can have, and also the tech uh, terrible, awful, crazy, bad things that can happen when people use them in other ways, tools and weapons. Again, uh, you know, these companies help us make a living as creatives, but we also worry about what they have unleashed and how much power they have. And uh, Land of the Giants is a very professional production, well worth listening to. Also this week, if you like horror, dark fantasy, dark fiction in general, I am in a awesome joint promotion this week 8th to the 15th of March 2021 you can win six signed paperbacks including ink by Jonathan Maybury which is worth worth it for the cover design let alone the book and I've read the book it's awesome (laughs) Jonathan Maybury is one of my favorite authors uh I'm definitely one of his super fans I actually want to enter this myself but I can't because I'm in it (laughs) um and it has a gorgeous cover Strangers by Michael Brent Collings, one of, again, one of my favourite horror writers. I love Michael Brent's books. And uh, he's also one of the most popular guests on this show. His writing, his interview on writing with depression continues to be helpful to so many people. So yes, you can get Ink by Jonathan Maybury, Strangers by Michael Brent Collings, The Ruins by T.W. Piperbrook, The Spread by Ian Rob Wright, Creative Spirit by Scott Nicholson, who was on the show ages ago, and desecration by me yes you can get six signed paperbacks and there's also an extra prize which is you can be in to win a kindle so just go to bit.ly so bit.ly forward slash signed bestsellers so bit.ly forward slash signed bestsellers between 8th to the 15th of march 2021 to be in to win six signed paperbacks and I'm as I said I'm super excited to be in a promo with these awesome authors links as ever in the show notes so thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week Chris Bardell says hi Joanna listener for 10 years thanks Chris for sticking around that makes me feel good uh this is one of the very best episodes in all that time with uh, with Patrick last week great interview great guest absolute gold level of authority authenticity and knowledge now subscribe to Patrick's podcast yay thanks Chris glad you enjoyed it Monica and Julie message on Twitter to say uh, I love separately (laughs) Monica says I love your idea of stocking up on tinned food if not for your own emergency then for those who will be raiding your home (laughs) post-apocalypse and Julie said your apocalypse cupboard in this week's intro made me laugh yup the apocalypse apocalypse cupboard very important and just a couple more oh NC Manda said on Twitter, catching up on the past episodes, really needed to hear this chat with Sarah Painter today as I'm struggling through a slump at the moment. I hear you, NC. I was all sort of all guns blazing heading towards writing Day of the Martyr. And then I was like, do you know what? I'm really tired. I am super tired. I'm tired of so many things and I need a break. So I get you. I feel like it's not I'm not officially in a slump. I just need a break and a holiday and something. (laughs) And finally, Mary A. Schaefer sent a brilliant picture saying, listening to the show while installing a roof vent fan in my TV in the middle of the Arizona desert. And it's a picture on the top of the van there. So that's very cool. 
So today's show is sponsored by Publisher Rocket Software, which I personally use for category and keyword research. And I wanted to mention it because I am really deep into Publisher Rocket this week as I finalise my categories and keywords for publishing. Yes, how to make a living with your writing. Basically, there are a number of things you can do with the software. You can use the category search tool to investigate the Amazon subcategories where you could rank more easily if you want to get your orange bestseller badge. Uh, You can do competitor analysis where you can see where books like yours are in terms of categories, which helps you compile your list for when you publish. And remember, you can have up to 10 categories on your eBooks and print books. You just have to email uh, Amazon help through author.amazon.com and ask to be added to the various categories. You can also use Publisher Rocket for keyword research to see which are the best keywords to add and what might be useful for your Amazon advertising if you're doing that. But basically, we all need to pick two categories and seven keywords when we self-publish. And Publisher Rocket can help you do that for both ebook and print books. And there are lots of helpful tutorials and it really is simple to use. And in fact, even if you did this a couple of years ago or whenever, you do need to revisit the categories and keywords as things change over time. So I use Rocket uh, regularly and uh, I highly recommend it. You can support the show by using my link at thecreativepen.com forward slash rocket. So this type of sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. You guys are amazing. And uh, especially these extra AI related interviews, they're definitely supported by my patrons who basically fund my brain. So thanks to new patrons this week, Beth Wagner, Alexandra Markowski and Jen Randell. Thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon and especially if you've been listening for years and supporting for years, you're amazing. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. It demonstrates you enjoy the show and want it to continue. I wanted to mention, I always say you can support the show with a few dollars, but you can also support it with a few euro, GBP or Canadian dollars. It doesn't have to be US dollars and you can just buy me a coffee a month or a couple of coffees a month if you're feeling generous. I do drink a lot of coffee. I actually have a black coffee right here, right now. <laughs> so you get the extra Q&A, monthly Q&A audio, and you can support the show at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview with Steve. Stephen Pressfield is the international best-selling author of non-fiction books, including The War of Art, Turning Pro and The Lion's Gate, as well as novels including The Legend of Bagavance, Gates of Fire and Killing Rommel. His latest book is historical thriller A Man at Arms. So welcome back to the show, Steve. It's great to be back, Joanne. It's great to be on The Creative Pen. This is one of my favorite podcasts of all. You're definitely (laughs) one of our our most returning guests. So I wanted to start with, we're going to get into your new book soon, but I wanted to start with a question that is, we're in a pandemic still. As we record this, February 2021, many authors are struggling to write. So I wondered, first of all, how have you been staying creative during the pandemic? That's a great question. First of all, I found that the writer's life, or at least my writer's life, is not that different from the lockdown life. Basically, <laughs> I'm at home in a room staring at a screen. I go out for a coffee once in a while and then I come back. But I would say like the first half since March to wherever, when I was, it really didn't affect me at all, except maybe to make me more working longer hours. But then I had a switch And this may be of even more interest to our listeners. I've never been a great marketer of my own stuff, a great promoter of my own stuff. I go go on your podcast and that's about it. But for my new book coming up, A Man at Arms, I decided I'm going all out this time. I just can't stand to have another book of mine come out and just vanish without a trace. For maybe the last six months, I've been just about doing nothing except working on promoting the book one way or another. So that's been my sort of creative, whatever, nemesis. And I find that I have tremendous resistance with a capital R against promoting my own stuff. I feel like I'm a bad guy flogging my, I'm forcing myself, I'm inflicting myself on people, that kind of thing. But I I know I shouldn't think that way. And I know that's a real amateur way of thinking. But in any event, that's what I've been doing really for the last six months with uh, my girlfriend, Diana, we've been working together and we've been just working on that, on promotion. 
Wow. It's so interesting you say that about resistance around marketing, because of course, in The War of Art, your great book for writers, which I'm sure everyone's read listening, but you talk about resistance in there. And I don't think I've really heard you talk about resistance to marketing before. So how did you get over that? Like you said, it's an amateur way of thinking, but how did you actually push through that to to do all the videos Uh, you've been doing? Yeah, I'm still in the throes of pushing through it. And I still, I'm definitely not, I haven't mastered this by any any means. I really have to flog myself each morning to, to do it. But there's a couple of things. One is my previous, the most recent book called 36 Righteous Men, which was a real killer to write. Took me like three years. was really hard. I didn't do any promotion. It came out and it just died. And I think it died not so much because it's not a good book, but just nobody knew about it. And so I just said to myself, I, my career is over if I can't solve this because these days, if you go with mainstream publishers, they really don't do anything for you. Or they only do the sort of the very expected stuff. And, uh, and that just doesn't work anymore. So I really felt like it was like, like almost a career question for me. I just had to do this. You know, I had to master this or at least make a shot at it somehow. And one of the things I did, I don't know if, do you know who Ryan Holiday is? Yeah, he's been on the show a couple of times. Oh, he has. Uh, hey, Ryan Holiday's everywhere. But I, I'm friendly with him. So I, and he lives in Texas. I live in California. So I called him up and I said, can I come visit you and give me, you know, a few hours and just teach me what you do. And so he did. And we spent a day together in Texas and a lot of what he told me, I was taking notes feverishly and he was sending me stuff on email. And I also made a new friend, a guy named Jack Carr, who is a thriller writer. You may have heard of him former Navy SEAL sniper. And he, like Ryan, he is like a great marketer of his own stuff. And I watched him and I saw how for two months at a time, he was doing nothing but marketing his, his most recent book. So I've, they've been role models for me in, in helping me get over the idea that I'm a bad person if I do this. And, and I realized that I still hate to do it. I still feel bad about it, but I, I, I realized I just have to, and I don't even know if this is going to work. I've been going, blitzing this thing now for months, and I have no idea if it's going to work. I'd have to have the attitude. If it doesn't work, so be it. But I think by the end of this, I'll be sold on this as a way to do it. But when all is said and done, Joanna, I will have spent as much time on marketing as I did writing the book. So for whatever that's worth. Well, and I think they- I'm also lucky in that I've already got a bunch of books out there and people have heard of me and and I do have a little bit of a fan base. So it's, I would imagine it's really hard if you're starting from scratch. Marketing is definitely tough. And I'm certainly, I'm always encouraged by what you share. You're, you always share very honestly and openly. And I think you've always done this though, your memoir, yeah. the knowledge, the overcoming the problems and getting to the typewriter. And so you've overcome these challenges over and over again in your writing career, which is, and you're still showing us that. I, I did want to ask you about that because overcoming resistance is also a matter of discipline I think like you said you just you what do you say flog I flog myself to do this in the morning and sometimes it feels like that going to the writing page as well so I wanted let's get into a man at arms because you use a lot of warrior metaphor a lot of discipline metaphor a lot of strength and you've got a video series on this and it underlies the war of art so tell us a bit about how you your own military background underlies uh, the books you write and how much of you is in Telemon, the main character in A Man at Arms? I I do think that I didn't have a long military career. I was a a reservist. So I was like six six months of active duty and five and a half years in the reserves. But it did really stick with me. And But I, I think that in many ways, the discipline that I learned came from failing so much as a young writer and running away from doing the work and then going down the terrible rabbit holes in my life, having things just go really bad in my life and finally realizing that 
the discipline of writing was what would save my life, it would keep me on the right track. And if I didn't do it, and I know all about this, Joanna, it's really what you talk about over and over. I'm not a very nice person to be around if I'm not working. I'm, and I'm not fun for myself to be around. Whereas if I am working, then I am as much fun as I could possibly be. But so I think the discipline, a lot of the military sort of, I, I, I think of myself not to make this sound uh, too over the top or anything, but I do think of myself as like a warrior of the page, of the blank page. And I bring the sort of the virtues of a warrior, I think are applicable also to the virtues of a writer or an artist. For instance, courage for one thing, patience, really big one, selflessness. And another big one is the willing embracing of adversity. That's a warrior type of thing. And I think it's absolutely for a writer or an artist, because we all know what the slog, what it is. Yeah, I do. Another thing to go on a little sidetrack here, another metaphor that I use sometimes other than warrior is a mother. If you think about a mother, there's nobody braver or tougher than a mother, particularly with a baby, with a newborn. And if we're, a mother will run into a burning building to, to save her baby. She'll lift a car with two hands to save her baby. And I think that we as artists, we're pregnant with our work, right? And we're like a mother, we're trying to bring in new life to the world. And we set our own ego aside and our own needs aside, just like a mother, to protect this new life that we're trying to bring forth. So I, that's another kind of metaphor or model that I use in, in my own in my own mind, as I'm trying to overcome my own resistance and self-sabotage and procrastination and all that kind of stuff. Mm, yeah, so, I think some, sometimes we need these metaphors to keep us going and, and overcome the challenge. And yeah, of course, we do. The, the warrior doesn't always win as well. Sometimes you're on the losing side. So right, that can, right, that can right. Help when your book doesn't go so well. But I wanted to come come back to you, the, the character of Telamon of Arcadia. So he's the only returning character in your books. So why, what makes him stand out for you? What is it about this character that you're like, yeah, you have to go back? While I'm talking about uh, flogging my new book, which is what I'm going to do right now, as opposed to flogging myself in the morning to get but the new book is called A Man at Arms, and it's about, I have this one recurring character, only one recurring character in all my books, who's Telamon of Arcadia is his name, and he's like a gunslinger of the ancient world. He's like a one-man killing machine of the ancient world, instead of using like a Clint Eastwood, man with no name character. And what's fascinating to me about this character, he's definitely an alter ego for me is that he just materialized on the page for me. Was not He first appeared in a book of mine called Tides of War, and then he came back in another one called Virtues of War, a hundred years apart, and he hadn't aged a day. And I had not planned the character in either one of these books. He just appeared full-blown. And what was interesting to me was that he had a philosophy, he wasn't just a guy that was out there slogging through the mud or anything. He was like a thinker, and he definitely had a philosophy. It was a dark philosophy, and it came out fully formed, and I didn't even know what it was. It wasn't like I sat down and said, oh, I'm going to create this character, and here's what he thinks, A, B, C, D. So I, it was a fascinating philosophy to me, too. So I wanted to find out more about it. And over the years, readers have written into me and said, when are you going to bring back this character, Telemann? We want a book all, only about him. And I thought, I, I want to do that too. And for years, I tried to come up with a story. You know how you're looking for a story and you do an outline, you do another outline. It doesn't work. It doesn't catch fire. And finally, I just, like about three years ago, I got a story that I liked. And I was excited about it. And I'm still excited about it because it allowed me to explore this character and find out what his philosophy was and how and how it was going to change through this story. I wanted to know what happens to this guy. And would you say he's a archetype of, because again, the, you talk about the warrior archetype, the warrior ethos. Is he your archetypal warrior? And you say he's your alter ego in a way, but does he represent a, almost a sort of Jungian psychology archetype of a warrior? I, I think he does, Joanne. I think he does. There are There are lots of different 
warrior archetypes. So lots of different styles. You could have Alexander the Great would be a certain kind of a warrior, or Leonidas of Sparta would be one. But Telamon is definitely an archety- a warrior archetype that, re- that I can relate to, in that he has taken this identity of a warrior as far as it can go. Nobody can beat him. He can't seem to die. He's uh, whatever, but he's tormented by this and he's searching for whatever comes next. And I feel like I'm in that position too, in a way, you know, what, like as a writer, I've got it down in terms of my own self-discipline and I can do it, not completely, but pretty much. But, and I'm searching for what's, what am I missing here? What's the next, is there an element that I'm leaving out? And I think the element is actually love when it all comes down to it, but I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. But yeah, he's, he is an alter ego for me, this character of Telamon. And then it, obviously this is a, an ancient world setting. And I wonder, it's set uh, 55 AD, not long after obviously the crucifixion of Jesus. And you've written about Judaism before in several of your books. But how did you research this area and how do you balance the historical truth with what some people you know, might consider religious uh, or faith truth? Ah, that's another great question. Here's another thing, Joanne, of course, as a sidebar to that question, and I know this, when you start in on a book, a lot of times you're not, you don't know right away where it's going to be set or what the time period is. It just pops out. And for me, the date of 55 AD, 20 years after the crucifixion or thereabout, I just knew that was when it wanted to be set. I don't know why. And as I got into it, it became really clear to me that This story was in the aftermath of the crucifixion. It was in the aftermath. It was what's going to happen. We've seen what happened with Jesus, but is this new religion just going to peter out? Is it just going to go away? Is Rome going to crush it as an empire? What's going to happen here? And I, I hadn't even really thought about that until I was in that moment. I put Telamon in that moment and... Without giving, I'll give away some of the story. I might as well. The, the gist of the story is there's a letter sent by the Apostle Paul to Corinth in Greece, to the community, the Christian community in Corinth, the letter that would become the book in the Bible, 1 Corinthians. Mm. And it's the letter that has one, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I thought as a child, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing of faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these, it's got a lot of great quotes that we remember in it. And I wanted the Romans to try, the bad guys to try to stop this letter and that Telamon, my gunslinger character, would be hired to stop this letter. And then things would happen from there. But getting back to faith, I know I'm blathering on here, Joanna, but, no, I, I'm enjoying but it. I will. <laughs> when a character, any character in any book or movie, if it's Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, if it's any character... When they change, any hero, they have to change or there's no story. And when they change, that change almost always takes place on the soul level, on the spiritual level. And if we do, if we write a story and it only takes place on the behavioral level, the change or the, the superficial level, then the readers, it doesn't resonate, it doesn't work. It has to happen. So the idea of it's almost like any story, when it comes down to the climax, comes down to some concept of faith. It might not be something that you would name as religious, but the ending of Casablanca, just as a classic example that we all know, where Humphrey Bogart puts Ingrid Bergman on the plane to Lisbon, and he gives her up, right, for the greater good, for the greater cause of the resistance to the Nazis. So that's happening. That's a change that's happening for him on the soul level. He might not cite religion or anything like that. In fact, I'm sure he wouldn't. But but the reason that change is so powerful is because it happened on on that level. So that was what I was trying to get to in in this book, A Man at Arms, and have my character Telemon change on the soul level. And it coincided 
with faith in this case. Which, yeah, is really deep on the theme. Just returning to the research, because I know a lot of people love writing historical fiction, and you've written a lot of historical fiction as well. So do you research by, obviously, in COVID times, you're not going back, but I know you've been to Israel and done a lot of research there before. But what? how are you researching that period of history? Are you reading a lot of nonfiction, or how do you research? This is, I'm going to, I'm going to say something that maybe you're, maybe will surprise you or maybe it will be liberating to to our listeners. A lot of the stuff in my books that seems like it's absolute research is I'm just making it up. Let me go back to, to an earlier book of mine, to Gates of Fire, that was about the ancient Spartans. And in researching the ancient Spartans, there's very little about them. We only have 24 words that are written by an actual Spartan. Their arrest is all from various Athenians and stuff like that. So one of the things I did in writing Gates of Fire was I would come up with a term in English, let's say for a type of military exercise. And I had a friend, a Greek friend, Dr. Hippocrates Kanzios, and I would send him this term in English and I would say, give me the Greek word for this. And, and he would. And then I would put that in the story. And basically I'm making it up but when you read it, you go, wow, that is so real. But again, I had to because there is no real research for that era. Like in, in your country, in, in the UK, let's say you want to write about Queen Baudica from, if I'm pronouncing that right, from wherever that was, first century AD, fighting the Romans. There's not, there's, I've looked it up, there's very little about it. If you're going to write about it, you're basically going to write like Game of Thrones. You're going to have to invent whatever it is. But I did a lot of research in Israel. I was in Israel for nine weeks. I, I went over the ground. I talked to millions of people or lots of people, and I imbibed a lot of stuff there. But like, for instance, it, a man in arms, a lot of it takes place in the Sinai Desert. And I knew a fair amount about that from talking with Israeli tank commanders and infantrymen and stuff who were there during the Six-Day War. But but I wasn't allowed to go in the Sinai Desert because that was Egypt. It was a border you couldn't cross. In the story of Man-at-Arms, again, one of the characters is a witch, is a sorceress. And she, one of the things she does is she gathers medicinal plants from the desert and, and makes these teas and these things that help keep people awake and help heal wounds and stuff like that. And so I looked up as much of that stuff as I could but then I just invented names. I just invented the name of a plant and that it did such and such a thing, had such and such an effect. And so if you I shouldn't give this away, but if you read it, you think, holy cow, this guy really studied. He knows the whole geography, botany of the Sinai Desert. But I really don't. I just made up a lot of it up. I love that. I actually think that is very liberating. I find I'm I'm recently went to Canterbury and I'm writing a Day of the Martyr and I have the Thomas a Beckett murder and as you say and that's a thousand years, eight hundred and fifty years ago. And of course there are accounts, but they're very biased. So even if there are accounts, so for example Paul's letter to the Corinthians, obviously we can read that. But yes. then the, the church obviously got rid of any thing that criticized Christianity later on and got rid of the Gnostic Gospels and all that. So much of, even if we think we're researching from a biased point of view, so almost by making it up, you're adding a bit of balance, I think, to the bias. That's how I look at it. Definitely, Joanna, because it's like if you're researching Alexander the Great, there's no document that was written close, less than 400 years after his death. And just like you say, the bias, either they hated Alexander and they painted him as really a bad guy, or they loved him and they cut out all the bad stuff about him. So the historical fiction writer, it's our job, I think, to enter that unknown territory via the imagination and just ask ourselves, what would it really have been like? A lot of times I find when I'm doing research, I'm reading between the lines. I'm trying to say, yeah, this guy's saying this. But what was really going on there? And I think when you do that, those are the scenes and the elements that readers really respond to and really feel like, oh, that really brought me back there. But I think you do have to take, you have to be brave and be willing to, to state things that you don't know for sure. 
Mm. And I wondered there, because you, I think you're really also talking about subtext where you're, you might be saying one thing, but you actually mean something else. And you've talked about the levels that a reader will, you know, want to connect with on a soul level. So it's not Telemon had a sword fight. Yeah, that's great. But also Telemon is experiencing something on a deeper level. Yes. So when you mentioned also that you do an outline and then you work from that, when you're planning your outline, are you thinking about the conflict? on the higher level and the conflict on the lower level at that early stage or is that Ah. the type of thing that emerges as you write? Ah, That's a great question, Joanna. I think it's a little bit of both. A lot of times I think I've had this experience with my great editor, Sean Coyne, numerous times where I'll finish a book completely. I'll write 10 drafts and give it to him And then he'll tell me what it's about. I don't know. He'll explain to me the deeper story. Almost always he'll do that. And I'll go, wow, did I really write that? And then I'll go over it again with that in mind. But having had that experience with him a bunch of times, I've learned to to jump ahead of him a little bit. And now I ask myself, I was reading a story about Steve Jobs, the guy who founded Apple. And supposedly he used to go around the, the workplace and stop at people's offices and cubicles. And he'd ask them, what business are we in? And then he would ask them, what business are we really in? And what I took from that as a writer is asking, what is this story about? And then what is it really about? And that really about is the deep level, is the soul level. And I will, at the start of a story, like with the character of Telemon in this story, I definitely did a kind of an, an outline that I called the understory. And I started with where is he at the start of the story and where do I want him to be on the soul level at the end of the story? And then I would go back and look at the various beats where he would change. Does he change slightly here in act one? Then he changes a little more at this scene. And I really wanted to make it absolutely clear in my mind. And then there would be a big moment when he really changed. But yeah, so I definitely, and I highly recommend that to myself going forward. And anything else I do is asking that question, what is it about And then what is it really about? It's a very, I was just thinking then about the the question you said, what business are we in? What business are we really in? And I want to come back to you on that with that question about us as writers, because I feel like on the one level, like you're wanting, we want to please ourselves when we write, but that's not the business we're in, right? The business is not pleasing ourselves. Yeah, I, you're, that's a great, another great question, Joanne. Before I even plunge into that, let me just talk about the UK for a second. You could very much say, what is Brexit about? And then say, what is it really about? It's re- I don't know what the answer to that is, but it's at some, on a really deep level, it's some sort of reclaiming of the identity that goes back to when you guys used to paint your faces blue and fight the Romans. It's probably something like that. But anyway, let me pass beyond that and get back to your question. When people ask me, what is my job description? What do I do? And my answer that I've come to over the years is I'm a servant of the muse. And that's my answer to what is it really about? And what it's really about is I believe that we're put on this earth with a bit of a destiny And that just as your books, you have books that are like you were born to write and that are on the bookshelf behind you and you have books in potential on the bookshelf ahead of you, I do too. Mm. And so do all of us. And I think I'm just asking the question of the goddess, what do you want me to do next? And I'm not, and I just try to believe that she has some kind of plan. That there's some, if you think about Bob Dylan's albums as a total through line or Bruce Springsteen's or the Beatles or anybody like that, there is the body of work is saying something, right? And I think a lot of times the artist herself or himself doesn't even know. We don't even really know what this is really about. But all we can do is try to follow that, I think. There are a lot of writers that don't work like that. A lot of writers write for hire, or they try to second-guess the market. They say, oh, the market wants this. Let me give it to them. Or I can get a job working for who wants me to do this, so I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And I understand that. I respect that. But my own style is I feel like 
I was put on this planet to write something. I don't know what, but book by book, I, I want to let it unfold. And, and that's what it's really about for me. I love that books of potential that you said there, because I feel that too. I feel like there are so many ideas. Like at the moment, I in fact, today I was just writing out like this paragraph is this book, this paragraph is this book. <laughs> and, and which one should I do? You that because you've written lots of fiction and nonfiction and your audience of people in the military to historical fiction readers, to writers, to artists. And I wonder, so how do you know or how do you decide which book to write next whether it will be a non-fiction to help writers will it be another historical fiction how do you know what is your next potential i still don't have a real absolute answer for this usually the way i go for it is i ask myself what am i most afraid of what upcoming project scares the crap out of me and I say, that's the one I, I got to do. But again, resistance with a capital R is so diabolical at, at fooling that it, it can fool you. <laughs> but yeah, I usually try to, a lot of times I will know for sure because I get seized by something and I just have to do it. And usually in that case, it's usually an idea that I think is really stupid. And I usually think this is never going to sell. This is the lamest idea. This is not commercial at all, but I'm seized by it. And I almost always have to make a decision of, okay, I don't care. I'm going to put in two years. And if it totally flames out, so be it. And usually those are the ideas that actually work the best. Don't ask me why. I have no clue. So that's easy when you're seized by something. But other times it's a lot tougher. And there's that early period where you're maybe the first few months where you're pushing through something and you just have, and I'm in a case like that right now with another book that I'm thinking about where you just, each day you finish and you go, is this any good? Am I getting anywhere? Is, it, is this just the dumbest idea? I don't even like it. Why am I doing this? And But a lot of times after three months or four months or something, you'll start to get traction on it. You'll go, ah, that was just a period of doubt. That's all it is. And I just had, that was just resistance. And I just had to push through it. And again, I think that's really encouraging. And in fact, I went to your blog and I think this is the one you're talking about. You said you had a, you're having a hell of a time even conceiving it. And I'm not even sure what to include in this damn thing. And I was like, wow, it's so great to hear that you suffer from this and the doubt because people think that it goes away, that maybe once they've written one novel, that, that it, it will just go away. But do you know any writer who has got over that kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, I don't actually. And, and there does just seem to be that period of self-doubt at the beginning of a project. I mean, like I, this one I'm working on now is basically it's Diana, my girlfriend, is encouraging me. She, oh, this is going to be wonderful. You got to do it. You got to do it. And I'm just saying to myself, I don't know. I just don't know. And it's, it's an autobiographical thing. I'm going to be telling about certain things that happened in my real life. Mm. And of course, I'm thinking... Who cares about this, Steve? Who wants to hear about these dumb things that happen to you? And write a novel, do something. Don't do that. But I think I'm, oh, here's one thing I did, I want to say. Maybe this will help our listeners who might be going through the same thing. The thing that has really helped me in here is listening to my dreams. I've had a couple of kind of those dreams that wake you up and you just know they're important dreams. And both of them have encouraged me to have faith and to keep going after I finished analyzing them. I take that really seriously because I think that's our soul communicating with us, our unconscious communicating with us. So that's one thing that keeps me going on this mm. thing. Although I've had to set it aside, like I say, because of promoting a man at arms. But I'm now anxious to get back to it. It'd be so great to get back to just writing. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Just on giving up is something that someone actually asked me about this just yesterday. How do you know when a project is worth continuing with? And when do you give it up? And I haven't given up a story I've started writing. But I wondered if you because you said you have these different outlines. Do you give something up before you start? Or do you ever give up a project when you actually put time into it? I'm like you, Joanna. I think once I've gotten into it, I almost always finish it. I don't know if that's a bad idea or not. Yeah. I usually drop Stop projects <laughs> in the early stages. And I'm just asking myself, is this a good idea? And it just, if it just doesn't, I just, I, if I just can't get any enthusiasm going for it, I'll just put it aside. 
But I've also found sometimes that those projects, if you come back to them a year later, suddenly you go, oh, that's a pretty good idea. I don't know why I threw that away. Maybe sometimes it just takes a few iterations for something to gain traction with us. But I, I think basically once I start on something, I'm like a terrier and I just won't let it go. Yeah, me too. And I think it's one of those Heinlein rules, isn't it? You start, finish what you start. Oh, is that right? I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I do think if you put too much time, if you put a lot of time into something and you do quit, it's a bad thing. It's bad karmically in some way. I'd rather finish it and have it fail than assuming I've put in a lot of time, not just a little time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then you mentioned about doing some more autobiographical work and you've put a lot of your personal life in a lot of your books. I've read most of your books and you really get that sense of uh, your history in that as well. But how difficult is that for you to be really honest about yourself and your failures in some sense and your triumph? It's much easier to do it through a character, but why do you do that? What do you think drives you to share the personal thing? I, I think like in The War of Art or in other books that are about writing, almost every story that's about me is a failure. There's, there's practically no stories of success. And the reason that I do that is, is I want to help the reader. I want to encourage the reader. I want the reader to feel like, because most of us, when we're reading a book like that, we're thinking about our own failures, our, not even stuff we finished that failed, but stuff we never even got started or stuff we procrastinated, stuff we sabotaged ourselves on. And I think it's encouraging to read somebody like me telling you, the same thing happens to me over and over. It's like one of the things about social media, Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that, is people only put out their best selves. You see the picture, they're on the beach at Saint-Tropez or whatever, toasting with champagne and everybody, the rest of us who are watching it, we go, oh, I hate them or my life is meaningless, I'm not doing... But I think it's more. it's really empowering when you tell a story about a failure empowering to other people because they can say, okay, if it happened to him, then it's okay if it happened to me. Mm. And, and most of life, I think, is failure and just getting up and trying again. Yeah. And certainly the writing life, as you say, you put in your effort on your books. And am I right in saying the war of art, for example, was not a success out the gate? It took a long time before it. It took a long time. I would say between 10 and 15 years before it finally, it just started, it just was a word of mouth thing very slowly. Then I have to encourage you about a man at arms. If all your promotional stuff means the first couple of months are slow, it may take some time. Yeah, that's true. In fact, it's it's happened, Gates of Fire, which was one, which is probably the, my biggest success, quote unquote, that took forever. It took another 10 years before it finally, little by little, kind of found an audience. Mm, I think that's very unfortunate. A lot of times we go out for 10 years and they don't find anything. <laughs> this month is actually my 10th anniversary of my first novel coming out. So I feel like, yay, I've put in a decade. It's the beginning. Ah, that's great. Congratulations, Joanna. <laughs> that is great. It's a start. Uh, so I just, uh, before we finish, I did want to return to marketing. We did start that way. Now you've been blogging for at least a decade. I actually, I think you've been blogging a long time and you've obviously been learning so much and you've been doing this video series on the warrior archetype which is great and people should definitely go look at that it's got the practical stuff but also the more psychological spiritual angle so how have you seen this kind of content marketing the blogging the video play into your book marketing do you see any direct results or is it something that you do for your own creativity as well another great question Joanna I say it's maybe 50 50 that I've certainly learned more than I've taught from my blog that's about writing. But at the same time, I do think it really does help to have something out there that, or to establish relationships with people who, who, who will come to your blog or come to whatever it is. It's a really fine line for me because I hate to just be selling. It's, and a lot of what I do on social media and stuff like that, I hope is it, I feel like I'm giving, you know, that I'm putting something out there that I hope will either encourage other writers or artists or entrepreneurs 
or will give them a little insight into the craft. Just like what you're doing. 90% of what you do is helping people. Here's how to do this. Here's how to do that. Here's how to deal with this issue. How's how to deal with that issue. Let me ask you, Joanna, how do you feel for the stuff that you do? How does it, let me ask that same question to you. Yeah, I make a living because 90, as you say, 90%, even 95% of what I do is given away for free. And then a certain number of people support the podcast, they buy the books, they buy courses, they support our fiction. And I'm absolutely a supporter of content marketing, because I feel like we can express ourselves creatively. And I love talking to you. And we're getting something from this, but also the listeners are too. So it's a win win. uh, To me, that's why I love content marketing. Ah, I've never even heard that. That's what it's called. Content marketing, huh? Yeah, there you go. Could you define, how would you define that? It's giving away something for free so that you attract your target audience who then a a tiny percentage of them might actually go on and buy something, but enough of them do to support your book launch or your whole business, which is, it's, it's the foundation of my business, essentially. I guess it's really the foundation of mine in that yeah. sense. And, and I, I never even heard that. It's a great term. Huh, I got to think about this a little bit more. <laughs> there you go. That's fantastic. So tell people where they can find A Man at Arms and all of your books and everything you do online. First, if you just go to my website, stephenpressfield.com, we've actually, I've learned this thing. I never knew what a splash page is. Do you know what a splash page is, Joanna? Yeah, it's like a, like a landing page. Your site looks yeah. great now. You've had it redone. It looks brilliant. Yes, that was Diana who did that, actually. If anybody goes to stephenpressfield.com or www.amanatarms.com, it'll take you to this landing page slash splash page. That's really all, all about the book and the bonuses that we have and the pre-order bonuses. And it's got all anything anybody would need. And then underlying the splash page, and I never knew that this worked before, is my regular website. That's you would have to click the big X up in the upper right hand corner and it takes you to the underlying website. And that's about my normal war of art type of stuff. But stephenpressfield.com or amanatarms.com will take you to, to everything or follow me on Instagram. I'm doing a lot of stuff on Instagram and a lot of it is about giveaways that we're going to do and little contests that we're going to have. Fantastic. Um, Thanks so much for your time, Steve. That was great. Joanna, it's always great to talk to you. Anytime you want me on, I love to do it. It's great to talk to you. And thanks for the great questions. I I hope it helped everybody. And thank you so much. It's great to be with you. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Steve today. His comment early on shocked me, to be honest, when he said, I just can't stand to have another book of mine come out and just vanish without a trace, which implies that this is what has happened perhaps more than once. And he also said, my career is over if I can't solve this. And I guess personally, I'm encouraged. I know it's terrible, but I'm actually encouraged that someone of his experience and longevity and writing skill in the writing life, um, you know, he still has challenges around writing and book marketing and his example that to keep learning and to keep changing it up whatever stage of the writing life you are at is so important the world keeps changing and we have to adapt along with it as you know this is why I'm doing these extra shows and talking of change and extra shows this week I will be talking about blockchain for books and I'll also be talking about NFTs which are all over the news right now in the music and art industries and given that those industries, certainly in the music industry, um, are usually a few head, a few years ahead of us, I will be sharing my thoughts on the opportunities there might be for authors and the things we can possibly do uh, as ways to expand our work into even more exciting areas. Then on the usual show on Monday next week, I'll be talking about how to be successful publishing on Kobo Writing Life with the super helpful Tara Kremen. And we talk about international publishing, book marketing tips and more. So that is all coming up. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.